The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Good morning, Long Island, and welcome to GDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Gomez, and again, so glad that you can join us this morning as we share and explore all relevant issues related to autism spectrum disorder. Uh, this morning, we'll be continuing my conversation with Veronica Glippen, founder and chief executive officer of Autism Behavioral and Educational Services Incorporated. For those of you who were with us last week, you will remember that we were talking about her contribution to a text around the issue of, actually, what a title, Veronica, inclusion is a matter of life and death more than we realize, and that's true as it relates to our population. We were talking a lot about how providers can be an essential resource to families when it comes to communicating the importance of survival skills in an emergency and prioritizing that as an area that is an area of education. So welcome back, Veronica. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for making the time again. I you uh, as as I shared, uh, there was a lot, a lot to cram into in such a short show last week. So I wanted to uh, take this time to dig a little deeper and talk to you about some of the other concerns that were not mentioned uh, last time in terms of preparing uh, families. We talked a little bit, my goodness, about oh, the dangers uh, in fires and eloping in, in, in uh, you know, safety and drowning. And all of that was about equipping families to be prepared. Let's pick up right there. Absolutely. We, you know, we, the numbers are high. Um, Individuals on the spectrum um, are just not prepared and are not able to, some of them are not able to learn from um, observation and their outside world and um, modeling. So um, we're seeing the the percentages of these individuals um, eloping, wandering off, drowning, um, being in traffic accidents, um, it's really high. It's really unfortunate. So we we discussed, you know, about families and you know why don't they bring this up? Um, but it, this 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 is unfortunately their norm. So I think they're just used to this and they're just used to dealing with it. Um, and then um, we talked about providers and, and what's out there and, and what can providers do. Um, and providers can start their intake off with some safety checklists. Um, There really isn't uh, an actual assessment out there that I can think of that solely just focuses on safety. There is, you know, the violent that can be conducted. It's not really appropriate for our individuals at times, but it does cover some of the safety pieces. Um, But there really isn't a whole, there's not an assessment that I can think of unless you're familiar with one that really um, evaluates the the safety skills of these individuals. And, and, you know, the reason the chapter is named that way, I think, is because, you know, we think of inclusion and we think of kids being included in schools and in the communities and after school programs. But, you know, being able to just survive and be safe, that really is the number one piece of inclusion we should be looking at. 
Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting way of characterizing because a lot of times when we think of inclusion, we're thinking in terms of demographic inclusion. And here what you're talking about, I think, is inclusion around what needs to be prioritized for for everyone and why certain groups are not given the same attention or at least as much attention as they need uh, to be to be safe. And this came up in the initial chat. And one of the points that I believe you made, which is an important one, is that sometimes it has to do with uh, parents just being overwhelmed, nothing deliberate or you know, certainly not deliberate or calculated or even insensitive, just not just being overwhelmed. But sometimes I also think, and maybe you can speak to this, that with a lot of issues of, of, of safety and well-being sometimes marginalized populations aren't they often overlooked because they're not given the same recognition and respect don't we see that sometimes too we do see that sometimes absolutely i would agree with you on that that's definitely a part of it yeah does uh did that excuse me did that inform some of the reason why you got involved in this initiative this initiative to ensure safety yes and amongst i mean there's so many different reasons this is so close to my heart um i've done this for 25 years across the country i've um started out in new york and long island actually um went to adelphi as an undergrad um majored in psychology and you know wanted to make a difference and started working with adults and, um, you know, teaching them vocational skills and teaching them how to utilize um, the bus system. How do you get to work? Back then, we didn't have Ubers and Lyfts um, and cell phones like that. Um, so being able to teach them safety skills, um, you know, that's that's huge. It started then and I made my way down to high school students and then elementary school students and then, you know, um, EI, early intervention, children under three and um, you know, I was able to see what are, what are we able to do with these kids now so that their their prognosis for life is just so much better. Um, their outcomes are way better when they're adults. So we're not reacting when they were becoming adults. And and uh, so this has been a lifelong um, journey for me in my career um, and just seeing it across every age group. Mm-hmm. This this really is it, it hits home definitely. Um, just having and I, I'll give you an example. I have a colleague who um, has a an organization like mine in the state of Illinois, and she um, also practices out of Georgia. And they had a three year old um, client that they lost last weekend due to a house fire, mm-hmm. um, a kitchen fire, um, and this child was home with their grandparents. Wow. Um, and it's just, I mean, just, I mean, any life lost is is sad, uh, yeah. but this is a three-year-old, you know, and there were adults present um, and it's just, yeah. So to me, this is, this is, I got involved because I want to, I want to save lives. I want to make a difference. I, I want to change um, the quality of life for all of these individuals and their families too. Are you finding that as you think about the the kind of provisions that would need to be put in place, that they have to be tailored in some ways to different individuals in different settings? Or are there considerations that have to be taken into account 
when you're making recommendations around those kind of factors? They definitely have to, I mean, they have to be tailored. Every individual, we always say an individual with autism is an individual with autism and not everyone's the same. Um, so being able to see what their skill set is, being able to see what needs to be pre-taught. Um, and then it really is individualized. And also looking at um, the family as a, a whole, um, being able to see what they're capable of doing um, versus what they're not. Um, so I think it, it definitely needs to be individualized. It's not just uh, one size fits all for everybody because autism is a spectrum. We go from, you know, really high functioning individuals to, um, to low functioning. And we just really, and it's, it impacts everybody. It impacts everybody under their umbrella. So we need to make sure that it's really individualized for every single person. Yeah, that makes such sense. I mean, it really does. Uh, I do find that in my observation, in the work that, that I have done, it just as you said, it's never been a one-size-fits-all. But often the, the work of describing an intervention, or in this case, a strategy for safety and well-being, begins with some kind of assessment. And even if it's not a formal paper and pencil you know, test, there has to be an assessment in the way of getting a good sense of what, what what's currently being done or not so i'm gonna guess when you're doing that you're there's at least there's there's an informal approach at the gate where you're speaking with people is that what's going on right so we do interviews absolutely there is that september 26 project i talked about it's at www.september26.org um, there are checklists there on top of being able to check to make sure you kind of covered everything else, but there are checklists that providers can give to families to check off or as you're doing an initial intake or parent trainings, those are the pieces you bring to the table and you really target, you may be initially safety, um, like fire safety, and that next could be natural disasters. We're seeing fires in California. We're seeing fires in Australia, we're seeing fires um, all over the place. So being able to utilize those checklists would be a good way to go um, to, to start the conversation to figure out what the family needs. Do people need any specialized training to, to give these assessments or to do them? Is there any special training that's required or is it just really getting uh, a, 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 a simple understanding of the test itself? It's a simple understanding. If families can check it off themselves and see gotcha. where, where gotcha. the areas of need are. Gotcha. And that becomes the point of departure. Absolutely. Good. Well, you know, you're listening to DDI Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism, giving a voice to its Long Island community. Now stay with us. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue our conversation with Veronica Lipman on the subject of providing safety and well-being to this population in emergency situations. And, you know, Veronica, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the parent manual uh, that you've been involved in, in writing. So stay with us. to DDI Autism on 103.9 FN. I'm Dr. Mike Rumas, continuing my conversation with Veronica Glickman. Right where we left the off, we've been talking about providing or ensuring safety 
for persons on the spectrum in emergency situation, real survival stuff. Uh, Veronica, I, I wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about the uh, parent manual uh, that you are you are writing. It, it certainly caught my attention. I thought maybe you could speak to it uh, a little bit now while we while we have time to do it. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. So I'm in the process. I've, like I mentioned, I've been in this field for about 25 years now, and I have had a lot of um, patients that have switched over from one provider to the next. And, you know, families have come to me and said, you know, how do we know what's quality and what's not? Our child gets diagnosed Um, and then we look at our insurance, we go into our insurance and see who's in network and call and have them, you know, and have them provide therapy to our child. Um, but we don't know quality. So this manual really will target what should a parent look in a quality provider? Um, what should they expect from a quality provider? Safety is going to be definitely covered in that manual because I think that's a huge piece of being able to help these families function, be able to access their environment and communities. Um, and um, so that's, um, I mean, there's a lot more chapters to it. It talks a little bit about, you know, insurance companies and how they function and what to expect and what the rights are of the families. Um, same thing for school districts. Um, so I'm trying to kind of cover it all but in a in a very user-friendly manner for the families um so that's that's what the manual is about is is really to teach the families what they should look for in providers so that the therapy that their um child um whether they're um uh, you know under the age of three whether they're an adolescent whether they're an adult um is is receiving quality services and that they, at the end, feel like they can access the outside world and not feel like they're stuck inside and they can't take their child anywhere. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the reason behind it. You know, I get the sense that you really do, do understand how overwhelming uh, it can be for families. Uh, I mean, it's the earlier conversation, but I think about a lot of this idea that uh, people like me and perhaps yourself, you know, I'm in the field here because I love it. I mean, it's a choice that I've made, but I think for a lot of parents, they're kind of drafted and they have to learn everything they can. And they have to learn it very quickly. So I'm thinking that a manual and, and other manuals that help itemize, identify the kind of considerations that have to be in play could really could really be helpful are, are you basing your work uh on on your experience and are, are you also doing research to make sure that the manual itself uh is is thorough i'm doing both yeah. um so my experience and definitely research i um do consult across other states um in the country on a lot of uh denials for services from insurance companies so we appeal those denials done a lot of webinars on medical necessity, um, teaching providers how to justify uh, their recommendations and how to write proper treatment plans. So it really, I'm um, gathering information kind of across across the country, I'd say, and also doing research in the background to ensure that it really kind of encompasses everything, but it also is really user-friendly. So it's not this long book that someone has to just read and, you know, 
Um, I just want them to be able to kind of get through it and get a gist of what they need. Um, so yeah. trying to balance that out right now. No, no, that's, that's fun. Is that what you meant uh, when you talked about it needing to be user-friendly so that families are not really just mired in an exhaustive amount of reading? I think that would be yet another, do you would agree, right? That would be just another layer. Absolutely. It's, it's like opening up Google and typing it in and just going down a rabbit hole, you know, like that, which is just, and it's, it's more stressful. I mean, and, and like you said, it's not, we, we are trained there. They fall into this. Yeah. Um, so not knowing what's out there or seeing what's out there and there's no evidence. There's a lot of therapies that are not evidence-based out there and promise you the moon and stars. And it's just, it, yeah, it's just going down a rabbit hole. I don't want them to do that. I want them to be able to really grasp the concept, understand it. And, um, you know, questions I would be, I talk to families all the time, just on my own time, just because, you know, when they get diagnosed, they don't know what to expect. And, um, and to me, a half hour, an hour of my time, it doesn't really matter, just a matter of educating them. Um, so to me, that's the whole point is to be able to provide them with this information. And if they have any further questions, they're welcome to reach out there, you know, and, and ask questions because as the children get older, as they become adults, criteria and expectations change as well. They absolutely do. You know, to, to circle back to a major theme in our conversation, both in the, in the last show and now this larger issue, large issue of safety and how that even would come forth uh, in, a, in a manual. You know, it occurred to me as we're talking about that it can, would you agree with this, that it can be communicated as, in some ways, as a discrete area, you know, safety and safety level, some of the points that you're making, but can it also be embedded in teaching in general? In other words, so why couldn't you be teaching communication and socialization, I'm sorry, socialization skills and recognition skills in the context of teaching safety skills as well. It, it, couldn't that all be, and not always, I mean, you know, embedded, it's where you're, you're, it doesn't have to be an either or. Right. Well, our, you know, our program in, in my clinics, it's, it's, a, it's taught in a very naturalistic setting. Right. So it's not, you know, sitting child, a child down, if you, you know, go on YouTube and you put an ABA it kind of brings back like the drills at the table. It's not what we do. We teach everything in a naturalistic setting. So yes, those skills absolutely could be taught. And then they're easier generalized too, when they're taught in a, in a naturalistic setting. Mm-hmm. So I ex- absolutely agree with you that, that it should be taught in that manner. Yeah, I mean, thinking about what you were saying about the kind of drills and and as an ABA person, you know the importance, too, of discrete trial training, but it's it's a departure point that has to include natural settings, otherwise there's no generalization. So that's, you know, that depends on what a child particularly needs. But to your point, and and I I guess mine, when it comes to safety, learning about safety, that can't be done in a vacuum. How could you possibly? It has to be generalized and uh, the sooner the better. Right. And then our individuals that we work with, we know they have a hard time with generalization, generalization across settings, across people. So yes, once the skill is taught, it is really important to generalize it across other staff they're working with, families, teachers. There's a lot of 
collaboration needs to take place so that we're seeing the skill across boards so that the, the individuals that we work with don't feel like this is the only place they utilize these skills in, that it's all, it's it's everywhere that they're at. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking too, you know, with respect to your work and your contribution, both in the manual that you're writing in the chapter, it seems to me, and you can correct me here, that part of what you are advocating and pushing for is parents to understand, especially parents, to understand what that generalization kind of looks like. So that, in other words, so that even if you have some members of your household that are equipped to respond to an emergency, that there's been enough work with the child who is challenged that whatever is taught in a, in, a, in, a, in a separate or segregated setting, if that's the case, is useful in, in when, when, when that fire strikes, that there really is an ability for that. Yes, completely agree with you. And those skills can be taught to parents through parent trainings. Um, the parents can... I mean, if it, the treatment takes place in a clinic setting, they can come and observe um, and then implement the same or similar instructions to the child and then ultimately take that scenario and bring it into the home and practice those skills. Um, a lot of the times we see when we teach the individuals, they can, you know, if it's a social story or, or they're reading something, they can repeat it to us verbatim. But role-playing is such a big component of them actually following through in those settings. Um, so that's a really big component, and we need to have the parents involved in all of that. It's funny that you mentioned the role-playing, because I, I kind of agree with you. There's a way that's as close, I think, as we can get in this kind of a situation to uh, an applied approach where someone really has almost like a a muscular, like a kinetic memory of what has to be done. And I think, well, to your point, I think role-playing could 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 take it there. I, you know, I have to thank you. I think this was a really helpful, uh, you know, conversation. Veronica, I think you're doing some really good work. And I, I know over the last couple of shows, there's been a real wake-up call to people who may not be giving this the priority uh, it deserves. So I, I think we include with a, a huge thank you uh, for me for for your time and uh, and I hope people enjoy it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on and letting me share, I guess, my love for what I do and, um, you know, hopes in keeping everyone safe. Well, gladly, gladly for it. My pleasure. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.